the, yeah, it's super exciting, man. You know, obviously, I think a lot of fans are looking forward to seeing. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, sorry, we had some. Okay. Go Did you guys on. get that? Yeah. Just had some interference. Um, but let's get back to it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. I think fans are going to look forward to, are looking forward to it and will be really, really excited to see, uh, you know, that whole section of Dwayne's life um, coming out of football and into the wrestling uh, era. So it's a, it's a long journey. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really exciting journey that he goes through. So, yeah, we can't wait to share it. Yeah, when the end of the season happened where you're seeing specifically he's stuck in in Canada in the freezing cold when he's used to being in Miami, that was a rude awakening for sure for him. Absolutely. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll let's go uh, with uh, with uh, Bradley. Um, Bradley, what he, really quickly, I guess, 30-second soundbite about season two. Yeah, uh, season two, bigger, more complex, more fun, a whole lot of love, a whole lot of heart. And uh, people have no idea what to expect. It's about to be awesome. So tune in. Have a blast. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I had a blast watching the season of all you guys. I really lived through it because I love watching my career in wrestling in the minor league level and living those kind of same things. And it was so much fun. And when we talk about Adrian talking about your season two for you, I guess getting in the ring and that's the teaser, right? Getting in the ring. It's got to be awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for everybody to to watch that and I can't wait to see it myself. It's going to be it's going to be just an amazing amazing thing to see. Um it was it was so awesome to do. I um I had so much fun. Like one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. All right. So I appreciate it, guys. It's such a quick interview. Young Rock Tuesday nights on NBC. I will be tuning in, and I appreciate you guys coming by. Thank you, man. Thank you. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just We're back to The Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave to Sandy. Dave, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic as well. And our guest today is a very famous director and uh, creator Kim Bass, and he's going to talk about Tyson's run and much, much more. Kim, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hey, thank you for having me, and I'm doing just fine. It's opening day for uh, my film, Tyson's Run, nationwide, so I'm having a good day. It definitely seems like a good day. It's a great story, but let's start out. Did you always want to be a director, creator, things like that growing up when you were a kid? I always wanted to be a storyteller and and be a filmmaker, even though at the time I was so young, I didn't exactly know what that was. Uh, my grandfather took me to my first film when I was seven years old. We actually got on a city bus and drove out of our neighborhood and went to a kind of a nicer neighborhood to a theater called the Uptown Theater in Utica, New York, which is in upstate New York. And I watched my first movie, which was a Disney film titled Miracle of the White Stallions. And I was so impacted by the experience that when I got home that evening, I told my mother that I wanted to do that. And who, who makes movies? And she told me it, it was done in a place far away called Hollywood by some people there. And I said to my mother, I said, I think they're the magic people. And when I grow up, I'm going to be one of the magic people. That's great. <laughs> We're talking about Mike Tyson, right? <laughs> <laughs> not exactly not exactly um, 
So, so, but so he always, so when you think about things, Kim, in, in so many ways, getting your dreams to come true, where do you think that process started after you said, this is what I want to do? How did that process start and continue? Tell us. Well, truth be told, I've always been sort of a kid who focused on things obsessively and it's something I just wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to have loved ones around me who encouraged me uh, ex and, and more specifically my mother. She said, not only is that what you want to do, she goes, it's exactly what you're going to do. And you need to believe that and move forward toward that goal. And she told me that when I was seven years old. And so the thought of being a filmmaker or being a storyteller, being in in the, the business never ever left my head. And so I, I give my mom a lot of credit, but certainly a lot of those around me who also encouraged me and supported me as I just sort of put one foot in front of the other, always staying focused on, on that uh, goal. Yeah. All right, so tell us about Tyson's story. Tyson's run, Tyson's run, Dave. But I want to go, I want to jump a little bit before I get that. Let's get continuing about this. So, where do you think that big break came? And talk a little bit about the whole big break process. That so you started working hard and the opportunities came. What do you think were the things that got you the opportunities to create these amazing shows that really just made your career such a success? Well, the first break that I had so to speak, was actually in Japan, where I was living and studying martial arts and teaching at a private language college, teaching English conversation. And I met a man named Junichi Takahashi, who was an agent and a producer, who had me audition for a television show. And I actually got the gig and I ended up on a Japanese television show. And then mm -hmm. I did other shows and got into movies there and stage. And so at that point I was actually either on stage or on camera. And I thought, you know, maybe that would get me back to the States where I could do acting work here in Hollywood. And I ended up in a movie with Jackie Chan called The Protector. And after that, I decided to move back to the United States thinking, okay, this, I, the door is open. I'm going to come back to the US after being in Japan for five years and having done a movie with Jackie Chan, all's going to be well. Well, the problem is I'm not a good actor. As a matter of fact, I'm terrible at it. So that wasn't, that wasn't going to work out too well. And I turned my attention to writing, thinking that perhaps I could write something that I could be in since no one would really cast me in anything. And I wrote my first screenplay finished it on a Friday. Uh, I'm sorry, finished it on a Thursday, gave it to a producer on a Friday and ended up optioning that screenplay to a production company on Tuesday. And I, that began my writing career. Wow. And you know, when you talk about the writing career in, in so many ways, and uh, it's something that you figured out your stuff, you figured out your secret sauce, you liked the industry, you love the acting business, you just, you, it wasn't acting. So what do you think makes you such a really good writer and creator? Well, I don't know if I label myself as a really good writer, but I like to write stories and I've stumbled my way into some modest degree of success, I suppose. But I liked telling stories even when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in a house with uh, a brother and four sisters who are all very funny, who are all very creative. So, you know, we would entertain 
you know, each other. As a matter of fact, it's it's funny that I'm the one who's quote unquote the filmmaker in the family because uh, we got our first little Super 8 camera when we were all very young. And for Christmas, I fell asleep. And when I woke up, my brothers and sisters had made a movie, which <laughs> I got to watch called Christmas Rally. And so they always played with the camera. I never actually touched it much, but I always, again, wanted to be be a be a filmmaker but it was always my burning burning desire to you know put something on the big screen and have that same experience i had that first time when my grandfather took me to the so when you optioned your first writing deal what did it, what was the show that you ended up doing first writing well that was a, a screenplay and it was entitled popsicle soldiers an action piece and it was actually optioned three times and so that sort of started to prime the pump certainly financially where i could you know, pay my rent and, and stay in Hollywood. And while that was under option, I ended up being introduced to Damon Wayans from In Living Color fame and my, my wife and kids. And we began a relationship. And soon after meeting him, I ended up writing two sketches for him to perform on, not necessarily the news, the HBO show. And then from that, we did a music video for Motown. And uh, soon after that, I was in the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop uh, with uh, a writing partner, Donald Lamoureux. And while being in that Warner Brothers Writers Workshop for sitcoms, I got the call from In Living Color to come and pitch. I pitched and next thing you know, I'm a staff writer on In Living Color, nominated for an Emmy. And we did you know, some pretty good work over there and for two, two seasons. And once that was over, I was offered an overall deal at Fox uh television at the studio level and did some work there on a show called true colors which was under my deal okay and i created sister sister and then created keenan and cal and it all the ball just started rolling so you know meeting uh you said damon is that who yes. well, yeah damon um, williams yes how did that how did that story of meeting because you know how this industry works it's all about the specific meeting we all have talent it's just meeting the right person right place right time how did that how did that develop that you got to meet him well i i optioned my screenplay uh as i said to a producer and that producer was uh an acquaintance of damon's manager eric gold at the time and apparently he had a conversation, just you know, found this new writer. He wrote a terrific script. We just optioned it. We intend to make this movie. And he said, really? And I got a call and saying, hey, well, maybe he's got some other good ideas. And Damon read the script and then wanted to talk to me about a film he was writing, a screenplay that he was writing. So he actually asked for the meeting. And once we met, we um, you know, got along and the rest as it. And then being it part of In Living Color, that's got to be amazing, right? How many superstars did you run into in In Living Color? Well, you know, it's uh, we we had some talented folks. I mean, Damon was there, Jim Carrey, of course, yeah, uh, J Lo and uh, Tommy Davidson, yeah. and uh, you know, we just had so many folks who came through there, uh, Jamie Fox, and so, and sometimes, uh, let's see, Whoopi Goldberg came on to guest star, and so we had a pretty good time. You know, Bruce Willis came to the set <laughs> because he was getting ready to do a movie with Damon, so it was it was interesting. You know, people think comedy's easy; it's it's a lot of hard work. And the show, the exec producer of the show, of course, um, was Damon's brother, Keenan. Yeah, and you know, he yeah. ran a pretty tight ship, and we you know we had a lot of fun writing a lot of 
good things with a lot of good writers on the show. So I was just fortunate to be among them. One of the best comedy things that really changed comedy in so many ways. And it really brought, I guess, the suburban to urban That's in Love and Color. Yeah, that's a good good way to put it. That's absolutely. Right. I mean, because I mean, I grew up and I'm like, wow. And then you just really said, never thought of these different things. And Fox shows developed. I uh, interviewed the voice of Bart Simpson, uh, Nancy Cartwright, uh, a couple months ago. And just think about that that Fox team. Wow, you know, of the shows on Fox. Yeah, a lot of married with children that. and living color. The Simpsons, and then what the shows you developed after. I mean, it's just like that Fox time was just a special time because it changed television. And I wish that they show more of that, right? Give a little bit more of a highlight how it changed television. Yeah, it was, uh, well, they, they took a chance on a lot of things that some of the other networks weren't taking chances on. And so it, it paid off and it was a good breeding ground for many of us. So I appreciate you know that experience. Absolutely. All right, Dave. So we're back to you in this. So basically, I am a huge fan of Inland and Color. He created other shows. We're going to get into Tyson's run because I love the whole story of autism because I am a former educator that worked in the autism community. So I'm really excited about uh, talking more about that. But I'm going to pass it back to you, Dave, for any other questions you have for Kim, and then we'll get into Tyson's run. Well, you're very successful, obviously. Um, and some people believe that success is a lot of hard work. Some people think it's just being in the right place at the right time. Some people think it's a combination of the two. What do you attribute your, your success to? And, and have you exceeded your goals and expectations of where you would be at this age? Well, uh, I think it is a combination of both. You have to be, opportunities, I believe, are, are surrounding people all the time. But you have to be prepared to take advantage of the opportunities when they avail themselves to you. So, and, and being prepared means having done the work so that you walk in the door, you know, uh, ready to go. You gotta be able to hit the ground running because you know, the entertainment business, you know, that second word business is, is sort <laughs> of the powerful part, right? You gotta be ready to do some business. And I feel that you meet some good people, but you gotta bring something that is valuable to the process. And I've been fortunate enough to meet some really good people and get some help along the way but I feel that I've had some, some maybe not great ideas, but some good ideas that others saw value in. And therefore the opportunities um, were sort of presented to me. And then, but you gotta be ready to, like I said, to go, to go right through that door when it opens. Now the story of Tyson's Run, you're the director. Did you write this as well, Tyson's Run, or just direct? I did. I wrote the screenplay, directed it, and I'm one of the oh. Okay, so tell us how you came up with the story for this. So I was, one morning I was at uh, my son's uh, elementary school and there was a young boy who sort of lagged behind when the other boys dashed off running across the, you know, the field at the school. And I asked him why he didn't keep running and he said that he... He said, I know I'm fast, but all the other boys are super fast. And so he doesn't like, he said he didn't like to run it anymore because they, he always felt left behind. He felt dejected. He felt a distance from the other kids. And so that touched me. And that started the, to percolate in my mind. 
And then as time went on, I started looking at what was going on in society where everyone's fighting for their mm -hmm. rights, uh, to be included, to not be discriminated against. And so <laughs> that nugget of an idea grew into what now is Tyson's Run. And so the, the talking about connecting autism to this, was that story, how does that bring the, the autism community into this as well? Well, I have friends who have some children who are on the spectrum. And I, so I had a sort of a firsthand view at sort of the challenges that they were going through and their concerns about whether or not their children would be included into, in society and how they would be treated at school. And so I thought that autism itself would be a vehicle that I could utilize to tell a more universal story because it's, it's so prevalent in society and the parents uh, feel so challenged and sometimes feel so uh, on their own, uh, separate from other folks in society. And so I thought that would be a good vehicle by which we could explore inclusion, explore acceptance, explore determination and forgiveness and, and the family dynamics. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a grandson who's uh, on the spectrum, he's Asperger's, and unfortunately, not a good story with him. He got involved with the wrong kids at, at you know, the age of uh, teenagehood. And he's in prison right now, you know, serving a 10 to 15 year prison sentence. But I'm encouraged because, you know, he's very smart and he's done, you know, doing school and uh, getting a college degree and working on, you know, understanding why he's there. And and he's exactly where he belongs because he needs that structured environment. And this may be the thing that saved him. Well, I'm sorry to hear what happened to him. And obviously it's because others took advantage of the fact that he yeah. isn't adept at picking up on social cues and, and right. who's lying to him, who's telling him the truth. Because they're, you know, what I have found is many on the autism spectrum are so honest, they're blatantly honest, and they're trusting, and they don't understand that someone who calls themselves a friend is actually manipulating them. Right. And then that's that's a sad thing. And he probably, you know, ended up where he ended up based upon someone else's bad acts and not his own, and just trusting and going along with you know his friends. Yeah, yeah. that's too, so. Tell us the premise of the of the movie now without giving away any of the major so, Yes, so Tyson's Run is a story about a 15-year-old boy who wants to help heal the rift between his mother and father. And he believes the way to do that is to become a champion. And the reason he thinks about it in those terms is because his father was a football champion and his father is the winningest football coach in the state uh, of Georgia. This is, uh, of course, fiction, but in the state of Georgia, one of the winningest football coaches in the country. And so, he and his father, you know, don't have a strong connection because the father has never accepted the fact that he has, quote unquote, this type of son, a son that he can't vicariously live through, uh, live out his dreams through because the father's uh, career was cut short through a bad knee injury in a bowl game in college. So this boy feels that there's a strain in the family and he thinks it might be because of him, not so much his fault, but because of him. And through his autistic mind, he sees a simple solution. And that solution is if I become a champion, my father will feel better about me and therefore 
better about my mother and better about the family and we will be made whole. And so that's sort of his, his thinking on that and mm -hmm. he's not going to be deterred from his mission to make his family whole. Sounds like a great story. Absolutely. What has it's been the feedback cool. so far of people screening the film? What do you uh, the feedback has been tremendous. We've gotten endorsements from many of the special needs community, many of the faith mm -hmm. uh, community, because it's, it is a, a film of faith. It's a film of belief. It's a film of forgiveness and love. So those are universal themes, but sometimes they are lacking in certain other stories. And I'll, I'd like to share one particular story with you. When we test screen the film uh, in Texas and Houston, uh, at the end of the screening, the test screening, and this was before the film was, was you know, fully realized, but it was good enough to gauge an audience's uh, experience when they watched it. And there was a father and a, with a, a daughter who was maybe 14 or 15 years old with Down syndrome. And he was in the lobby and he ushered his daughter into the ladies room. And then he knew I had made the film because I had been introduced at, at the end of the screening. And he walked over to me and he said, I'd like to shake your hand and thank you for making that film. He said, watching it makes me understand that I need to be a better father to my daughter. And I just want to thank you for that. And he hugged me and then cried all the time. And wow. just doesn't get any better than that. It does not. And I was so powerful. And I thought if that little girl's life changes for the better for, you know, my partner john capetta who runs planet nine productions green lighting this movie then we will have done some good service to this world that's what i thought at that moment absolutely and when is the film out is it out yet ready to go today's the day it opens today nationwide right so and i'm hoping that folks go out and support it we're across the country and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of theaters and uh, we're hoping wow. that that folks uh, go on out and, and, and find this film in their local theaters and they will not be dis disappointed. I think they're going to leave inspired and feel as if they you know, watched a family go through something that many families go through and come out the other side in a way that can inspire at least conversation. And my hope is that the takeaway is we all need to be a little more inclusive, a little more loving, a little more understanding to our fellow human beings, whether they be in this country, this in your particular neighborhood or halfway across the world. All right. My wife and I go to the movies every week. Uh, we'll check it out. Uh, we should bring our tissues with us. Well, <laughs> let's just say this. If I've done my job right, and there are those who say that I have, you are going mm -hmm. to laugh, you're going to cry, and then at the end, you're probably going to clap. That's that. Tyson's run. Got it. Yeah. So, so Dave, Dave is a caregiver and he has a question. I think the relationship of what you're doing with the autism community is fantastic, but go ahead, Dave, with your question. Yeah, so my wife had a stroke 25 years ago in the middle of our marriage. We've married 47 years, just out of nowhere. And, you know, it threw us for a loop for a couple of years, a grief process. Finally, we reinvented ourselves. I became Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. Uh, been on 52 TV shows, speaking on stages like Harvard and NASDAQ, Carnegie Hall, all over the country. And my wife reinvented herself. You know, she lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. So she decided she's going to do everything she did before. She's a gourmet cook. She's an interior decorator. I mean, just a cross between Martha Stewart and Wonder Woman. And so I've been talking to people because 30% of caregivers 
die before their loved ones do just from the stress. And so I'm, my mission is to help other people prepare for this. I wasn't prepared. You know, everyone is going to be either a caregiver or they're going to need a caregiver. Right. So it's inevitable. My question to you is, uh, has caregiving touched your life? Um, special needs is certainly a huge caregiving area. And you're telling the story. Good for you. Uh, what personal experience do you have? Wow, that's a, a great question. And I, I love the way you summed it up. We are absolutely either going to need care or we're going to have to give care. And to be a little bit personal, I and my lovely lady, we've just returned from the East Coast where we spent six months giving care to my mother, who is oh, wow. uh, in her Good for you. who had extensive uh, cancer surgery. Mm, and I also sorry. have a sister who has multiple sclerosis and is completely. Oh. Um, she's uh, completely disabled and wow. 24 hour care. So we were able to take, spend the last six months helping um, my other siblings give care to those in our family. But we grew up uh, knowing about that. Um, our father had an adult care home, that was his business. So he had a building full of people who needed to be cared for. And that was the one thing my father, yeah. he, he had a big heart and he had a good business sense, but he had a big heart and he put all of those people first. And so I saw it on a daily basis that, that he, people need care and they need those around them who you know, have it in their hearts to do well by them because people can be so easily discarded. You know? And so I, I have a long history of, of caregiving in my family. So I appreciate good for you. I appreciate what you're doing for your wife and you said what did you say across between martha stewart and wonder woman and wonder woman <laughs> and that's, a, that's a terrific thing and that means that you make the adjustment but you don't hold her back let her flourish let her fly as high as you know her yeah. wings will allow her to fly even though they're different wings than she had before yeah i don't treat her as disabled you know her mother would always say oh no no let me get that for you I says, no let her get it you're going to create an invalid i'm going to create an independent person Right. That's, that's right. That's right. She might have challenges, but that we all have challenges. It might be a little harder for her to reach something, but sometimes it's harder for somebody over to bend over and reach something. So right. You're right. You, you don't you love them. You support people, but you certainly don't coddle them to the point where they just sit and everything is done for them, because that's, a, in my opinion, is a disservice. Let, yeah. let them go. That, and that's the theme of of Tyson's run. Allow every person to be the best person they can be to fulfill their dreams to the best of their ability without prejudice, without barricades being put in front of them, whether they're barricades put up by loved ones thinking I'll keep them from hurting themselves. Right. That yeah. too. So let them go. Yeah. Be there to catch them if they fall. And that's what I believe prison is doing for my grandson. He's going to come out uh, a much better person, uh, perhaps getting in prison, but he couldn't get it home from his parents. Because, you know, it takes patience to be a parent to a special needs kid and love. And, and you got to just, uh, you know, have that mindset. And, uh, you know, it really wasn't there. It's a good story that sometimes doesn't work out in prison. Military could be one way as well. So, Kim, yeah. again, the movies out in theaters across the country. Is the website the best place to find out where it's playing or just to search Tyson's Run on Google? What's your... Take. Well, you can go to Tyson's Run, Tyson, TysonRun.com, 
licenserun.com, and then that will link you to the nearest theater uh, to your own particular city or your home or your neighborhood. Or you can just Google it, Tyson's Run movie. And, and we're spelling Tyson how? Tyson's, T-Y-S-O-N-S, run. Um, apostrophe S, right, Tyson's yeah. Run. Or but the website would be tysonsrun.com. Right, tysonsrun.com, that's exactly yeah. right. And that will tell you everything you need to know about the picture and it will tell you where you can find it. And I really hope people support support the film. And it's not about putting money you know, back in someone's pocket. It's about uh, being able to make other movies so we can tell, you know, other right. good stories and, and great. Uh, you know, be able you to- know, I wonder, I wonder if Mike Tyson is on the autism spectrum. <laughs> I never okay. considered that. Okay. I don't know, Dave. I bet, um, that's, that's probably another another interview, but just that's an interview. And see, he probably's met Mike Tyson. I get. I bet you you have Kim, right? Have you ever met Mike Tyson? Oh, no, I, I I've never met him, but I remember on In Living Color we did a sketch about yes, him. I remember it. We did, and we checked with him, and he thought it was funny because you know, nobody <laughs> wants. To so you had to you had to reach out in that thing. So other projects going on right now, Kim. I know this is your baby right now, this movie. Uh, but do you have anything else going on that you want to tell your fans? Absolutely. So this is this is the one right now, but we expect to be in theaters in either August or sep beginning of September with uh, a new film called Headshop, which is completely different than this film. It will also open nationwide and it's a wonderful story. It's kind of an urban setting fairy tale. And so that's uh, coming out it's in post-production. We're just finishing it up right now. So they'll be able to see that in theaters, hopefully just uh, four or five, uh, five or six months from now and developing uh, several other projects. One we hope to shoot uh, maybe this year called Mother Johnson's Miracle Christmas. And it's a wonderful Christmas story. And then to go opposite of that, there's a campy horror thriller called A Lawyer, The Devil, Three Priests, and a Nun, which <laughs> is is close to being greenlit as well. Oh, you got a lot going. That's great. And uh, we appreciate you, him coming on the show. Thanks again, Dave. And again, this was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment on the Neil Haley Show, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mike Velarde Show. And I'm excited to welcome to our program, Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on? How are you? Hey, great. How are you? I'm doing great, and I know we're going to go local for a bit and then maybe hit the politics trail national as well. Who's our guest today? Keith Fight. He's running for state house seat, 90 here in Florida. He's a great candidate. He's written several books, PhD, teacher, author, a really smart guy, very competent, and would make a great, great uh, senator, state senator. So. Hey, Keith, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Hey, Neil, thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike, for having me on. Um, I'm good. I'm good. And uh, I'm excited to be on the show and, and be able to talk about our campaign. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's get started and talk a little bit about that. Go ahead. All right. Well, um, first of all, <clears throat> when I see what's going on in the country, uh, my first thought is, thank God for Florida. And, and we have to keep that. And that's that's my goal in, in running for office is to make sure that Florida never becomes New York or California, that we keep Florida free. In fact, our campaign slogan is let's keep Florida free, um, because really, when you look at what's going on in these other states, in these in these liberal states, 
it's it's not America anymore. Um, rights are being infringed upon. You know, the government is growing bigger and bigger and controlling people's lives. And it's just not what the founding fathers gave us. So <clears throat> when I see this happening, um, another thing, thank God for Ron DeSantis. He's a great governor. And, and I teach leadership. I've studied leadership. My PhD is in educational leadership. And, uh, you know, I can honestly say, based on what I've seen and everything that's happened, Ron DeSantis is not just a great governor. He's actually a great leader. Um, to, to see somebody who refuses to stand down and do what he knows is right, even in the face of, of the onslaught he gets from the liberal media and, and the leftists that basically control the narratives that Americans hear. Uh, he's done an amazing job. But the, but the thing is, what people need to realize is Ron DeSantis is not going to be the governor forever, right? He gets reelected in, in 2022, and by 2026, he's, he's not around as governor anymore, term limits, okay? He can't be. So we need to make sure that the legislature is uh, as left proof as possible, because if we ever lose the Florida House and Senate and, and we lose Florida, I think Mike has said this before, then if we lose Florida, we lose America. Right. And, and that's 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 how it is. And you see the elect, election integrity. Florida's leading in election integrity. With, and now they have this new election police. Um, but the, what we've done. Um, since the, the nonsense of 2020 to beef up election security. Um, and you look at how we've stood up to the critical race theory in schools and the indoctrination going on there. Um, and, and even how he stands up to Joe Biden with the, the immigration and bringing in all these illegal aliens from around the country. You know, we, for some reason, the left seems to despise Americans. They despise America and they despise Americans. I mean, we have vaccination mandates for citizens, yet we allow hundreds of thousands of illegals to cross our border uh, with no vaccination, with, with no knowledge of what's going on in regards to COVID. You know, Americans are second-class citizens under leftist rule. And, and that's nonsense. We need to start putting Americans first. And, and that's in our schools with our kids, this, this gen, gender identity nonsense where they want to uh, tell kindergarten kids that they can choose whether they want to be a boy or a girl or not have a gender at all, whatever the heck that means. It's absolute rubbish. The parents are the ones who, who need to raise their kids, not, not teachers, not uh, school administrators and certainly not school board members. And, and, and that's one of the, we need to get rid of these school board members. You know, we have great candidates, um, you know, Connor Frontera, uh, Connor Frontera, Angelique Contreras, Jen Showalter, uh, Persaud. There's so many good candidates out there. We need to get those people on school boards. Those are the most important elections today. I know I'm here to talk about my campaign, but we really need to get those people elected because um, we're losing the battle for the future of America because the liberals are beating us in our education system. So until we get in there and we start taking back that education system and making it, you know, a balanced education rather than a, a one-sided indoctrination, we're not going to have a future America. So um, in my campaign, basically, we're focused on education. We're focused on keeping out critical race theory, 1619 project, all this anti-American curricula. Um, making sure that our, our students are basically learning to think independently, that they're being taught how to think, not told what to think. Um, and, and that's critical. It, it, it crime, you know, we have in Boynton and Delray, our, our crime rates are higher 
higher than the national average is, you know, that's nonsense. So we got to make sure that we stand up for our police, we support our law enforcement, and uh, and that we have law and order. You know, we don't we don't want what's going on in San Francisco or New York or Chicago uh, to come here. So that's an important part of our campaign as well. Of course, election integrity. You know, we have to secure those drop boxes. We have to make sure that uh, there's ID needed for mail-in ballots, and that you know the mail-in ballots is a secure process. Because that, that, unfortunately, that's not going anywhere. Um, immigration, we need to stand up to Biden's open borders. We can't have uh, thousands of illegal immigrants shipped into Florida where they become a burden on our social services system, our education system, our healthcare system, and all that. You know, we need to start putting Americans first. And we can't do that if we have all these illegal aliens being shipped in here in the dark of night. So we need to really stand up to that. Um, you know, and, and economic empowerment, you know, we need to empower people to live their lives, to improve their lives. And we can't do that with $5 a gallon gasoline. We can't do that with inflation at 7.9%. We, we need to do some things here, whether there's some tax holidays where we give a break to the Floridian citizens. Um, but we need to help these people stay on their feet in these tough times because, um, you know, I don't remember it being this tough. I can't, I can barely fill my tank of gas. Today it was $74 to fill my tank of gas. I'm just a teacher, you know, so I can't imagine uh, how hard it is for other people to, to be able to handle their, you know, what their needs uh, with what's going on with, with Biden inflation. So uh, those are a few things that uh, I believe we need to fight for. And uh, that's why I want to go to Tallahassee. All right. So, and I think you said Neil? By, by taking, you can hear me, right? Hear me, Mike? Yes. Okay. So based on what, yes. I, yeah. So what I was saying, Keith, is that you're looking at specifically enough, the people and understanding that the, the, the taxes and how inflation's going, you need to go to Washington, DC with an agenda and a change that needs to happen and represent Florida in that way. Right. He's going to Tallahassee. I went to Tallahassee oh, to shore off our state to support Ron DeSantis, you know, to get him back in. But, but, you know, just as much I'm supporting our, our Republican candidates for those federal offices, because, yeah, we, we need to do the same there. The, the difference is here in Florida, you know, we, we have a Republican majority, um, but there's still too many, too many votes that uh, don't seem to be carrying the people's interests. So we need to fill as many of those seats with Republicans. Like I said, Ron DeSantis is not going to be there forever. So we need to really um, make our legislature socialist. I got, I got, I got it. So, so, yeah, so you're running. So you're running for state. But what is that role of the state governor? Yeah. yeah, you're running for for the state uh, um, house or senate. You said senate or house representative. Mm -hmm. State house. State, state house. house. So what educate people more about what the state does, because everyone talks about the federal. I said educate us about the state because lots of people don't talk about the federal. Explain the difference between how you govern in the state versus the federal and how important it is. Well, I mean, basically, you look at the Constitution, the, the founders gave the Tenth Amendment the Bill of Rights, which 
basically says that any uh, any power not specifically given to the federal government uh, in the Constitution is reserved for the states. So most of the power, really, when, when we talk about education, we talk about healthcare, those things should be powers that that the state controls. They're not mentioned in the Constitution, and they are reserved for the state. So uh, there's so many things that happen at the state government. Education we control. So we whether or not they're getting indoctrinated or educated. You know, we, we control the teacher development programs and what kind of teachers we're putting in the classrooms, whether they're number one qualified and whether or not they're neutral and whether they're true educators or they're just simply leftist activists that want to build a base for the future. You know, that's all done at the state level. So when we talk about education, the federal government really doesn't matter. Okay, the only thing the federal government, the only control they have over education is that they have the power of the purse. They do basically uh, bribe states, right? They extort states. They they say, hey, if you want this money, then you're going to have to do this. That's what race to the top was under Obama and No Child Left Behind under Bush um, and real level because it's not in the Constitution. It's a state power. So we talk about education. It's Tallahassee, and that's where we're going to determine the curriculum. We're going to determine the type of teachers we have, everything, the, the funding for education, everything that we have here for our kids uh, and how they're going to be raised, how they're going to grow up is going to be determined in Tallahassee. And of course, when it, when it comes to law enforcement, you know, that's at the federal level, the state level has law enforcement, the lo localities have law enforcement. So there's, there's plenty to do in that regard. Uh, but election integrity, um, according to the constitution, it's the state legislature that has the power over elections. So it's our state uh, representatives and state senators that will determine uh, what our electoral procedures are and whether or not we are securing our elections, whether or not legal votes matter or whether uh, illegal votes are mattering or, or counting. And you just look at New York City, they, they voted to allow illegals, people who are undocumented, sorry, non-citizens to vote. You know, so you're talking about 800,000 uh, people who are not citizens of America vote for uh, local offices up there. What's, what's to stop that from spreading? And the only thing to stop that from spreading is, you know, people like conservatives that believe in the Constitution and believe in the, the government that the Founding Fathers gave us. So, and we can only do that at the state level. Uh, that's one of the reasons the federal government, the, the Democrats are trying to take over elections with that uh, Fool the People Act. Um, what's, what's your take on critical race theory? Critical race theory is what I call critical racist theory. Um, it is legalized racism. It's reverse racism. It's it's basically a war on white people. And um, you know that if I say that, it might offend some people. But that's the, the God's honest truth. When you have a theory that basically says white people are oppressors, the white people can't help but be racist by bor being born white, no matter where they're born or what circumstances or how they're raised. Because they're born white, they are racist, and they they can't understand racism. Um, and black people, no matter their situations, are victims because they are born black. Uh, that, that's, that's racism. That is discrimination. That is dividing people. And critical race theory is sim simply an attempt to divide people. Why? Because it's a Marxist theory. And the only way Marxism has any, any power in this world is by dividing people. And, and that's it. Uh, because if you, if you notice Marxism, it's, all, it's always, right? The fascists are always... 
in uh, Nazi Germany, it was the Jews. In, uh, in Soviet Union, it was the uh, bourgeoisie. And in, in Mao's China, it was the, the peasant, the wealthy peasant farmers, you know. So um, there has to be this division. There has to be this <clears throat> um, evil entity uh, in order to empower the Marxists. So critical race theory, really, we, what we're doing with critical race theory, if, if this is in our schools, is we are teaching our kids to be racist. We're teaching them that what a person believes, how a person behaves, what they do, the content of their character, as Martin Luther King said, none of that means anything. The only thing that matters is the color of their skin. So when you're teaching kids that, I don't know how you can say you're doing anything but teaching them to be racists. And the fact of the matter is, is that, and I've, I've said this at a bunch of places that I've spoken before, the left wants to continue to divide us by black, brown, and white, and we need to, to unite with the red, white, and blue. And that's it, we're all Americans. It doesn't matter, black, brown, white, uh, whatever other colors they wanna make up, whatever genders they wanna make up. The fact of the matter is we're all Americans. And, and as Martin Luther King said, we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. Well, what should we be teaching in school? What two things you think we could add that would, instead of giving time to something like critical race theory or sex education, what is the most important two things that our children need to learn today? We need to be teaching kids really two important things. Number one, we need to be teaching them life skills. Mm -hmm. We need to be teaching them, you know, yeah, you know, people, some people laugh at this, but how to balance a checkbook, right. you know, exactly. simple things like that. Basic life financial matters, uh, they need to know how to live. And, and I know back in the day, we had home economics classes where people learned to, to raise kids, to cook for kids, to, to repair things and build things. And um, we've come to such a situation where our schools are all about college, college, college. Well, not every kid is going to go to college. Not every kid should go to college. We need some good trade schools because I know for a fact that plumbers and electricians and mechanics make a heck of a lot more money than I do as a teacher. So there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a kid not going to college and going to a trade school. So we need to teach them life skills. We need to teach them how to think. Like I said, how to think, not what to think. How to be a critical th thinker. Most importantly, how to be an independent thinker. Now that's critical. Um, so we need to teach them those things. And secondly, we need to teach them how to be good citizens. And, and that's one of the things our kids, uh, you know, they, they grow up right now learning that America is an inherently racist nation they're learning that we are a crooked nation, that we're a genocidal nation and an imperialistic nation. They don't, they don't learn that we've given more humanitarian aid than the next nine countries combined. You know, they don't get taught that when there's a, a, a natural disaster anywhere in the world, that the United States is the, is the first country there, last to leave, that we give the most money, we give the most manpower. You know, they're just learning that because we had slavery, which, by the way, was not American only. It was in the entire world. Slavery has been around since ancient times. Um, and it was uh, African kings who were selling uh, slaves into slavery. So it wasn't as though we were, were growing slaves here. And, you know, yeah, it was wrong. The system was wrong. There's no defending it. But that's not what America is about. America is about what we've done to overcome that. And that's what the kids should be learning. They should be learning about the horrors of slavery and, and how horrible it was in Jim Crow and segregation. But it's also important for them to understand that America's greatness doesn't lie in the fact that it's infallible and that it's never failed or never come up short. America's greatness is in the fact that we've always worked extremely hard to overcome our past problems. 
And, and anybody who can look at the fact that we've had a black president elected twice, we've had black Supreme Court justices, we've had black senators and congressmen and at of the highest levels of all government. And to say that, you know, we're the same quote unquote racist nation that we were in the 1700s is, is just either somebody who's got an agenda to push or is just a complete imbecile. Does that answer your question, Mike? Yes, absolutely. No, we have that's that's the problem is the foundations have been destroyed. When when I read from George Washington's speech of 1789, proclaiming Thanksgiving a National Day of Prayer, you know he said it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge God, to do His will, to obey His mm -hmm. precepts, and those precepts have been destroyed, and they've been destroyed in the schools by taking the basic truths like the fact that there's a man and woman, and now there's transgender, there's this, there's that, depending on how you feel that day. If you feel like a woman, you can go into the woman's locker room and watch them shower. I mean, it's ridiculous, um, the nonsense that people are believing um, and buying into. And, you know, in the early show, I read you how my cousin feels about Biden being the greatest president since FDR. Um, and, and yet people are starving and they can't pay their bills. They're freezing in Minnesota. They can't pay for heating oil. Um, gasoline is, is $5 a gallon now. Um, I mean, you go to fill up your car, 10 gallons of gas is a $50 bill. It used to be a $20 bill. Well, that $20 bill that becomes a 50, you're in deep trouble. Absolutely. Can I, can I say something course, about, course, you know, because you talked about the fact that God is being taken out of yes. our society and that is classic Marxist. And yes. there's no, no better proof that the Democrat party, that the party of Kennedy and Clinton is now the party of Marx and Mao. Right. No, no greater proof of that than the fact that they want to take God out of our lives, yes. out of our culture, out of our society, because, yes. you know, what did God give us? God, we, we, we get the 10 commandments, right? how to live a good life, how to be a good person, how to basically have a civilized society. That's, that's what right. the Ten Commandments are, you know, thou right. shall not kill. Mm -hmm. Obviously the liberals don't believe in that because look at Chicago, but right. uh, the fact of the matter right. is well, how about that- adultery? I mean, that's, you know. Right, exactly. And, and Marxism, the, the goal of Marxism, they want to take God out of the lives. They want to take religion out because that gives people something to believe in. It gives people faith. And obviously the only God to Marxists are the government the government that controls your life. So um, that is, you know, at the very, very foundation of our problem is the secularism and the fact that, um, and, and here's one thing I don't understand. You have a party, the Republican party has traditionally been about family values, anti-abortion, right, pro-life, all this stuff that Catholics would agree with, yet Catholics vote overwhelmingly for the Democrat party. What do the Democrats do for Catholics? That well, that what I think it is, same thing with black people, with Catholic, it's, not, it's a religion. There's no real faith in God. If you're Catholic, and I was Catholic for many, many years, mm -hmm. um, you put your faith in the Holy Catholic Church. You know, they say, don't look, don't look to our sins, but look to the faith of our church. You take it from an individual relationship, like, like being a born-again Christian would, mm -hmm. where you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ, right? Um, to a corporate thing, where now the church is covering your sins. Not Jesus, but the church. But you still, even, and I am Catholic, but whether you're a Catholic, 
a non-denominational Christian, you know, evangelical, Lutheran, whatever you are. I mean, you still have your beliefs. You do, right? And this is my problem with the people who, the the supposed Republicans who vote against Trump or don't support Trump because they don't like who he is. So they're willing to support Marxists. So if you're a Christian, you should be voting against abortion. You should be voting for family values. Let me stop you there. Look how liberal this pope is. Well, this, that's, that, that's another okay. thing. You're right. Now this right. pope has come out against Trump, right? Okay, for, for which is a problem. Okay. Yes. Okay. So he's very much to the left. So now when he asks, well, how did these Catholics vote for the Democrats? You got a pope that's a Democrat. Very true. But even when 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 Pope John Paul II was right. the pope, right? Totally different. Yeah. Much more conservative. Yeah. Right. An ally of Ronald Reagan. Right. The Catholics still. And I don't know if that goes back to Kennedy because Kennedy was the first Catholic president. Maybe they still have that allegiance to. to no, I think I think the reason it goes to that direction is because of unions, and a lot of Catholics are in unions. Unions set up people to vote Democrat, regardless of what they do. That sets them up to be a Democrat. If you're in a specific area where you're a union member, a te- I know you're a teacher, Keith, but mm-hmm. meaning if you're a teacher. You're in union, you're going to vote Democrat, most of them. And, and just so, you know, Neil, yeah. I am not a member of the teacher union. I think they are evil and corrupt, and <laughs> I would love to see them gone. Okay. So what I'm saying is anyone that's in that type of uh, environment, that workers type of environment that are in a union are not going to vote against the Democrat. So that's the reason why in Catholic, there's probably a lot of people in unions. Uh, so that could be one reason. I mean, thinking of all this, we've gone really interesting conversation uh, today. I'm interested in this whole uh, debate and what, and I've just been quiet listening to this. Uh, but at the end of the day, for Republicans to win, Republicans are going to have to win the court of public opinion. So I'm going to ask Keith this question, you know, to be able to speak to a Democrat and go to the other side of the aisle and say that, I'm going to make your life better, but yet I don't always agree with everything you agree with. Why should they vote for Keith? Well, I think, and I, that's a great question because I think, and I think I've spoken with you, Mike, about it before. The, the Republican Party and, and conservatism in general has been absolutely horrible at, at the uh, public relations. Basically, our messaging has been atrocious. We're very, very poor in messaging. We allow the Democrats to, to, even though they're usually lying, speak to people's hearts, whereas we're trying to be logical with them. You know, people don't care about economic principles. What they care about is their pocketbook. They care about uh, being able to make a better life for their family, right? So I think when you talk to these people, you talk to them about those issues in a non-political way. You know, you talk to them about, hey, what are your thoughts about the gas prices? You know, knowing that when the United States does not uh, create our own energy when we do not drill for oil and gas that we're going to wind up paying this much you know is that something you support do you think we should be buying gas from venezuela and iran when we have it here and because of this you know I, and i wouldn't say leftist movement but because of the policies of the administration we're not drilling you know wouldn't it be easier for you if gas was back down to two dollars a gallon instead of five dollars a gallon you know, and, you know, when you talk to them like that, when you talk to them about schools and say, hey, now that we had COVID and you're on Zoom and you saw what your kids are learning, are you OK with what your kids are learning? Are you OK with schools trying to be their parents? 
and trying to raise them in, in ways that are opposite of the way you raise them. When you talk to them like that, it becomes a personal issue, not a political issue. And, and that's what people need to, people need to understand that the conservative future is much better for them individually than the liberal future. And unfortunately, our messaging has been so poor that it's going to take a lot of hard work to do that. Um, but but that's that's how I would approach it. I think just speaking to them personally, how it affects them personally, right? Leaving politics out of it, but getting them to understand that what they've been supporting, what they've been voting for is leading to them struggling to put gas in their tanks, struggling to put food on the table, you know, having to explain to their kid why they're a boy or why they're a girl or, you know, what does it mean to be non-binary, you know, which I, I don't understand or, or why there was a boy in the bathroom with them. You know, parents don't want their kids raised like that, right? They, and they, they don't want to struggle to put food on the table. Um, and when, when they understand that there's two different ways and maybe the old way is not working, I think you start to get them to at least think about it. And, you know, maybe they don't all vote for you, but maybe they don't go out and vote, right? Maybe they say to themselves, I'm not going to vote for that guy because I can't afford anything. And my kid's learning, you know, that even though he has male anatomy, that it, you know, he can be Jennifer today. Um, and, and they're not happy with that. So maybe you don't win them over. But you get them to understand that supporting the other side is taking them down a dark path. Wow. Again, some powerful stuff today, Mike. Any closing thoughts? Okay, Keith. For me, um, I just uh, would like to talk to any patriotic Americans out there, anybody who cares about the future of Florida, keeping Florida free, making sure our kids are uh, being educated, not indoctrinated, that we're growing up in a safe society, you know, where law and order is more important than criminal rights. Um, and we care more about American citizens' needs than, than illegal aliens who have broken the law to get here. If, if you're that kind of person, if you're worried about the future, if you want to be able to put gas in your tank and food on your table, um, then, you know, come out and support us. My email, my, uh, excuse me, my website is www.fight2022.org. That's F. EIT 2022.org volunteer make a donation we need people on here you know th this is a movement and it's it's not just me it's it's conservatives everywhere it's a movement to uh, they say save america but i think it's about renewing america renewing our uh, founding principles so uh, come on join our team get involved we'd love to have you all whether you're democrat republican independent it doesn't matter because it's all about america we're all americans if you live in Boynton Beach or Delray Beach, vote for Keith Fight on um, November. 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 Election Day, November 8th. Um, he's a great representative. He will be a great representative. He's a man of accomplishment. He will fight for you, and that's what we need today. He's someone that's going to fight for us as the American citizen. All right. That was the Mike Velarde Show. Again, MikeVillardeBooks.com and also WinningTaxSolutions.com. I appreciate you both. Uh, great show and take care. Thanks a lot, Neil. Thanks, All right. Mike. That was, that was the Mike Velarde show, guys. Take care.